Welcome to Hogan Lovell's newest podcast, Digital Assets and Blockchain, The Influencers. We're bringing you interviews with some of the most interesting and thoughtful voices, creating change in the digital asset space and highlighting the trends and issues you should have on your radar screen. I'm Liz Boyson, a partner at Hogan Lovell's Digital Asset and Blockchain Practice and a former U.S. federal prosecutor on the National Crypto Enforcement Team, enforcement attorney at a banking regulator, and senior advisor in the fintech space. In this episode, I have the pleasure of chatting with Ari Redboard, also a former federal prosecutor and advisor at the U.S. Treasury, and currently the head of legal and government affairs at TRM Labs. Today, we'll talk about various issues in the space, including security versus privacy, threat intelligence, and why you can learn to love crypto winter and more. Liz, thank you so much for having me. It is a super honor, just personally and professionally. I, uh, I love you. I think you're doing amazing work. And uh, yeah, no, really excited to join you today. <laughs> well, thanks again. So what is it TRM clients want to hear about these days? And what sort of players in the digital asset space is TRM helping out? Wow. Uh, yeah, no, amazing question. Um, you know, it, it's interesting. We work with a bunch of different types of um, types of entities. You know, first, we work with public sector. So we work with law enforcement. And for law enforcement, we're primarily a tracing tool. They are tracing the flow of funds in cryptocurrency to build investigations. So you hear about sort of these big cases out there. You know, Colonial Pipeline is, you know, sends a ransom payment. And uh, tools like TRM are able to follow the flow of funds because of the unique sort of open nature of blockchains to build investigations. Uh, we then work with regulators who want to understand sort of, you know, what are the risks associated with cryptocurrency businesses within their regulated ecosystem and how should they regulate? Um, we allow them to do that sort of in real time. And then finally, we work with traditional financial institutions and cryptocurrency businesses, uh, you know, exchanges, and uh, they are typically using us uh, for transaction monitoring. In other words, we are part of their crypto compliance stack. So if they want to understand sort of, you know, what are the risks associated with a wallet that they're going to transact with? Uh, they use us to sort of understand and mitigate those risks. Great. Well, thank you. So either with TradFi or some of the newer players in the digital assets space, what risks or opportunities to mitigate do you see them encountering? You know, it's interesting. You know, many of the same risks or challenges that we see in traditional finance are also in crypto. You know, I, I spoke at ACAMS uh, last week in Las Vegas. And it's interesting, you know, it's, it's filled with traditional financial compliance professionals. And what I kept saying is, look, a lot of these are the same risks. You know, we talk about things like peeling chains, which are where you send a small, a large amount of funds and peel off smaller amounts along the way on a blockchain. And that sounds very crazy and very complicated. But really, all that is, is structuring in the traditional finance world, right? You're uh, you have a large amount of funds and you're depositing or moving around smaller amounts in order to obfuscate those transactions. But the nature of crypto, that open ledger where crypto lives and moves, the blockchain allows for more visibility on these financial flows than we've ever had before. And that's sort of what we uh, what we do at TRM. So when you talk about the risks, of course, there are there are risks that are as severe as, you know, true national security risks. You know, we've seen North Korea uh, attack cryptocurrency businesses really at unprecedented uh, speed and scale. Uh, we've seen them attempt to launder those funds. Um, and uh, we've also seen regulators, you know, OFAC, for example, at the U.S. Treasury Department, take action uh, in, in, the, in that respect. But we've, we also see, you know, a proliferation of fraud and financial crime. But again, 
many of these are the same challenges that we see in traditional finance today. Yeah, absolutely. So many analogs there. And it's just so important to understand to understand, you know, what is new is is old again, or what is old is new again. Yeah, no, absolutely. And look, I mean, I, uh, I, I know we don't have uh, all day to talk about these. But you know, look, I mean, I think that just like in in the traditional financial world, there are true, you know, existential risks, those sort of national security risks. And um, in crypto, we're sort of seeing those play out today in terms of you know, North Korea, we're seeing terrorist financing, you know, we're seeing the attempts by, you know, Russian oligarchs and other to use crypto to evade sanctions, these paramilitary groups. Um, But at the same time, we have greater ability to mitigate those risks because of that open nature of the blockchain and the ability of tools like TRM working closely with law enforcement and regulators to track and trace those funds. Yeah, it's an extremely important mission to remember. And so you mentioned some of the analogs to fiat currency. Are there fiat currency pain points that digital assets can solve or the pseudonymous nature of the blockchain? Yeah, no, it's 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 interesting. Like, you know, the, the, the same uh, qualities that make crypto such a force for good, right? Decentralized, permissionless, cross-border value transfer at the speed of the internet, also makes it attractive to illicit actors who want to move funds at the speed of the internet. But I think in the big but there is financial crime investigators now, and that's not just law enforcement, that's compliance professionals at financial institutions, traditional and sort of cryptocurrency businesses now have more visibility on those financial flows than we've ever had before. So the nature of open blockchains, you know, transparent, um, you know, traceable, permanent, allows for financial crime investigators to follow the funds. You know, an amazing example of the permanence of blockchains is, you know, there was a recent arrest, you know, a year or so ago, a little less, of these two individuals in New York City who were charged, who have been charged uh, with laundering the funds from the 2016 Bitfinex uh, case. That was 2016, right? But because of the nature of blockchains, that permanent open ledger, uh, those, those, every one of those transactions is immutable. It is forever. And what that allowed is for financial crime investigators to go back and use more sophisticated tools like TRM to track and trace those funds, ultimately to tie them through great police work, frankly, search warrants and other types of things, to these individuals in New York City who they actually arrested. So there, there, there are qualities of blockchain that makes it just so different from a financial crime investigative perspective. And so that same sort of pernicious, um, you know, sustaining nature of the blockchain, though, that that can cause some problems, right? So we're seeing in Tornado Cash that some of the smart contracts are still out there, and it remains a challenge to make sure that they are not used by U.S. persons. Are you seeing that kind of activity and interest from TRM clients? Sure, absolutely. I mean, in in the wake of Tornado Cash, uh, we had a ton of interest um, you know, from sort of the larger crypto community, from regulators, uh, and from financial institutions that are really trying to understand how do we react to sanctions in a on a you know more or less entirely decentralized protocol. And the answer is complicated. And what's interesting is, you know, I think over the last few years we've talked about a certain sort of group of challenges, um, whether it's uh, self-hosted or unhosted wallet activity, whether it's the travel rule, which means you have to send funds with a transaction to sort of the next destination. Um, and we've been dealing with these issues. When I talk to regulators now globally, I'd say the two sort of next big issues for them to try to address in this sort of illicit finance, anti-money laundering space is DeFi and um, and, and NFTs. And for DeFi in particular, and, and, and for folks sort of on the line that aren't 
you know, following this stuff every day down the rabbit hole. Decentralized finance is really sort of on blockchain uh, financial services. So lending, staking, um, you know, mortgages, uh, interest, those types of things. Look, I think the question is, how do you regulate in a more and more decentralized world? And the reality is today, we still see most transactions in crypto ending up at some point at a centralized exchange. So regulation is easy because you can regulate those endpoints, right? The centralized exchanges, the Coinbase's and the FTX's and the Binance's of the world. But as we move to sort of more and more of a decentralized system, we're going to we're going to have to figure out different ways to regulate. And Tornado Cash, more than anything else, that designation really sort of unleashed that question. And just to sort of make it clear, the question really is, hey, look, there are illicit actors using this decentralized service. According to TRM, North Korea sent about a billion dollars worth of hacked or stolen funds through this mixing service. That is a huge problem because that is going to be used for weapons proliferation, ballistic missiles, all of this kind of destabilizing activity. But on the other hand, there were many, many legitimate users of Tornado Cash who wanted more privacy for very good reasons uh, in this sort of open financial system. So what is now happening is those in, those those regular users are being affected uh, arguably the same or more than the illicit actors. So now the question is, how do we deal with that? And I think it's up to DeFi protocols, cryptocurrency businesses to work with you know TRM, to work with regulators to figure out how do we stop bad actors from taking advantage of this new financial system that we're building, but at the same time, not affect regular users. And I think that's sort of the mission now, and that's basically why I don't sleep anymore. Um, <laughs> you know, that is uh, that is the problem we're all trying to solve. And you know, I mean, it, but like, you know, you know, Liz, I, I pinch myself, and I know so do you. Like, I'm like, I cannot believe I'm able to even talk about these really important questions. You know, post 9/11. These questions were happening in airports and, and on city streets, you know, this question of security versus privacy. And now it's occurring on blockchains. And I think it's really going to be the question of our of our time. Yeah, I think that's a really important uh, way to anchor it and, and understand the significance of it. So in terms of, you know, any myths about digital assets you may want to dispel or even countered in your experience, you know, we both came from backgrounds as federal prosecutors and it was really viewed as crypto is a, a means of committing crime. That's one myth I encountered. You know, you don't have to seize on that one. But is there one that you'd like to dispel or address? Yeah, you know, look, there there are there are so many and I think that, you know, like anything else, you know, even the mythology is grounded in truth, right? You know, crypto, you can move funds faster and in larger amounts than ever before. So, it's, you know, certainly being used by illicit actors to do that. But I think the myth is that it is anonymous and that it's ultimately good for money laundering. And I th I think we sort of got to that in some of our prior conversation, but you know, the nature of blockchain, this sort of open, transparent ledger, allows for people to follow the funds uh, and then ultimately allows for law enforcement to use other tools in their toolbox to associate individuals with those addresses to stop bad actors. And I think it's really, really critical. Um, you know, there, there are so many others, um, but I, I think that like a, a lot of them are, are, are really being answered. And I think, you know, even two years ago when I joined TRM, I think there was a lot sort of more need for education going on. And believe me, there's always need for education on, on Capitol Hill and with regulators. I think less so today. Um, I think people are starting to really kind of understand, you know, after the invasion of uh, Ukraine, there was this narrative around, can Russia use crypto to evade sanctions? 
And I think it was great because I think the answer overall from experts was, you know, no, you know, Putin and the Kremlin writ large are not going to be able to, there's not enough liquidity in the entire cryptocurrency market to do that. But at the same time, the, 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 the truth in the mythology is that bad actors are always going to try to use anything they can to evade sanctions. So you'll see Russian oligarchs. Last week or the week before, we identified paramilitary groups in uh, Russia that were using cryptocurrency to raise funds. Um, so we're, we're always going to see it. Um, but I think this balancing that plays out is those qualities of blockchain really allow for regulators, for compliance professionals, for law enforcement to fight financial crime in new and um, new and innovative ways. Now, that's such an important myth to dispel. And you, know, you mentioned the travel rule and several other, you know, they're not even compliance innovations. It's really just on a global basis, countries getting together and saying, you know, we want a space where either information sharing that used to happen on the SWIFT and other fiat networks now can happen via blockchain. What sort of, you know, innovative thinking are you are you seeing there for those who want to be able to share information that accompanies transactions and want to be able to share things like wallet attribution, which I, I just want to clarify for our listeners, is when you have a, a digital wallet, it is generally a string of characters uh, not tied to either a natural person or otherwise identifiable. Uh, but services like TRM can attribute and understand um, you know, whom that wallet is transacting with and give it for at least working purposes an understanding of who it is. So sharpen up my, my uh, you know, definition there, Ari, and yeah, no, tell no, us no. You know, how you're yeah. seeing that information sharing happen. The definition was solid. Um, <laughs> I think this sort of one caveat I would definitely make is that so tools like TRM, TRM in particular, um, we do not associate those alphanumeric addresses with individuals. So I'm not sort of saying, hey, look at that string of characters is Liz's uh, cryptocurrency wallet address. What we are doing is we are taking threat intelligence and we're layering it on top of that, um, that cryptocurrency address. So we're saying, hey, that address we know based on sort of whether it's we're transacting with the, that, that entity or whether we're getting open source information, that that, individual, that that address address is associated with terrorist financing or it's associated with sanctions because we've seen it on OFAC's sanctions list. Uh, and then we are, what we are doing is we're providing that data to clients to ensure that they know as much as they can about the risks associated with, um, with that wallet address. So yeah, no, it's, it's, it's like this in, entirely new field that is only, uh, only exists because of, uh, you know, open ledgers. And um, we're seeing more and more businesses sort of get into this space. You know, you mentioned traditional finance, and I think people may even say, um, hey, how are traditional financial institutions even engaging in this space today, right? This is a crypto thing. And the reality is, you know, we're seeing more and more traditional financial institutions, you know, the State Streets, the BNY Mellons, the cities, the Bank of Americas, um, get engaging in this space, whether it's sort of that really light touch, like, hey, I want to bank a crypto customer, and I want to understand sort of what is that risk profile, or, hey, I'm Goldman, uh, and I want to offer crypto assets to clients. Hey, but I need to know who that client is that I'm sending that address, uh, that, that those funds to. I want to make sure that that's not a sanctioned address. And then all the way to sort of, you know, the forward leaning, the JP Morgans of the world that are have issued their own coin in order to do transactions. So there's so many, we, you know, I, I keep going back to this and people say, how could this be true after 10 years or however long it's been? But the reality is we are first inning, maybe pre first inning 
as we kind of build this new space and we're seeing so much interest and uh, so much activity, even what I keep hearing called, uh, you know, the crypto winter. Uh, so lots going on nonstop. Again, not a lot of sleep, but um, but just incredibly fun. I agree. I think crypto winter is becoming our, our favorite season in some ways because it's a real opportunity for, uh, you know, giving a sense of what may come in terms of regulation and, you know, seeing some of the, um, you know, sharpening up of various business models. It's uh, It's been an, an, a time for growth, even though a difficult time, I think, for many in the industry. Totally. I mean, look, the price of Bitcoin, it's been, believe me, very tough. Um, and uh, it's certainly been tough on, on many, many crypto businesses. And I think it's really critical to kind of get out of this moment for sure. But the reality is um, you, you see more regulatory action, you see more conversations really globally on how we should start thinking about the space. And, um, you know, I think those, those conversations are only heating up. So, um, you know, I think that's really what we're going to see over the next few years is a uh, more highly regulated space. My hope is that it's, you know, thoughtful regulation that doesn't stifle innovation, that instead really, um, you know, provides the support that businesses need, the legal clarity that we need without necessarily sort of bogging down a, a, a sort of, uh, you know, very fast moving space with, uh, with, with over, over regulation. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned earlier, you know, another big issue that you're seeing in the, in the tracing world is curiosity about NFTs and, you know, whether and to what extent they can be used as either a store of value or a vehicle. Um, I agree. We are absolutely only in the first inning, if not the warm up with regard to the value uh, that NFTs can provide sort of in every way from, um, you know, everything from ENS addresses um, to associate, you know, brand names with um, a very with a, a given crypto wallet or um, NFTs could be used as document storehouses, et cetera. What do you see as sort of the questions around that and, and the future of where that is going? Yeah, I think we're going to do digital assets, NFTs, and blockchain for Hogan Levels next time, Liz, because we can do an entire, I don't know, three hours on this. But yeah, no, <laughs> absolutely. I think that the, the Look, I love NFTs. I love the current use case. My kids and I, we collect NBA Top Shot together. We open up the packs. We dance around. We get like someone good. Like it's awesome. Like I love it. I think they, you know, things like Bored Apes have have built really really cool communities. Um, and I think it's a really awesome first use case. But I do think it's just that. It's just the first use case. You mentioned documents. I mean, I never want to go to a DMV again, right? Why shouldn't my driver's license, the title to my car, be hashed to a permanent? Uh, location on a blockchain, right? Like, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I had to travel to Europe and realize that I had lost my vaccine card, which I had needed to get in at the time. I had to go to three pharmacies in order for them to put all the different places that I had gotten it. Why shouldn't that have been hashed to an immutable location on a blockchain? So I think there's so many really cool uses for this technology. Um, but like anything else, you know, in a TRM, we're focused on the risks. You know, anything that you can move value at the speed of the internet you're going to have illicit actors who are trying to take advantage. And we see that every day with NFTs. Um, at TRM, we have sort of unique coverage on NFTs because we cover the Solana blockchain uh, as well as Ethereum. So really, that's essentially coverage of almost all uh, NFTs. Um, and we're seeing a lot of sort of bad activity in that space. We're seeing NFT rug pulls and Discord hacks. 
um, you know, and all kinds of other types of illicit activity, fraud and financial crime. But we can also trace and track NFTs the same way we can trace digital assets. But again, sort of, you know, another area where I think we're going to see a lot of regulatory action over the next, you know, year or so. Um, interestingly, Treasury, the U.S. Treasury Department last year did a piece, uh, did a paper on uh, high value art in money laundering. And basically it said high value art uh, because of the friction is not a huge money laundering concern. I don't know. Agree, disagree, whatever it is. But there were five pages in there dedicated to NFTs and how that may be a concern. And having spent two years at Treasury, what I know is that Treasury doesn't do anything in a vacuum. And to me, this is like the very beginning of some guidance from FinCEN uh, or OFAC or potentially you know, through the, the larger Treasury Department process. Uh, and we're going to see sort of real action uh, in that space. Finally, last word on this is, you know, of the hundreds and hundreds of pages that we saw from executive branch agencies in response to President Biden's executive order on cryptocurrency, uh, there were two lines uh, or, or two further requests of the Treasury Department. One was a risk assessment in the next six months on decentralized finance. And the other one was a risk assessment, I believe, in the next nine months on NFTs. So to me, that says, all right, what is the next frontier in terms of like what regulators are looking at? I think for sure the, those two things. That's fantastic. Well, thanks for walking us through that. And I will say, you know, one of my fondest memories um, when we were all in lockdown in the pandemic was you open NBA Top Shots with your kids who were at home at the time and they would like, you know, know that you were going to do it and like almost run into the room. I can't believe you saw was... that. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, he's doing one. And so, I mean, he's that really is like great. one of my fondest memories. The, those are the great moments. Like some people had their dogs running through their Zooms. I would have my kids because they heard that I was opening an NBA Top Shot <laughs> on a panel. <laughs> I love it. That's awesome. I can't believe you're on there. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for spending some time with us this morning, Ari. Really appreciate it. And you're, you know, you're such a fantastic friend in the space and to the firm. So we're just so glad to uh, have you on this. So thank you so much. No, thank you to you. Thank you to Hogan Levels. And uh, yeah, let's do it again. Appreciate it. Visit HoganLevels.com forward slash blockchain for more podcasts and other resources or download more episodes from the Apple Podcast app or the Google Podcast app for Android users.